If you have your Bibles, I invite you to go to Matthew chapter 5 with me. For the past several weeks, we've been moving through the book of Acts with the aim of defining and emulating nine timeless marks that were part of the first century church. Last week, we left off in Acts chapter 6 and verse 7. The verse says, And the Word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And today I want to preach on the subject of making disciples, which is the final mark that we'll be looking at in this series. The call to to make disciples is what we know as the great commission of the church. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus is speaking with His disciples and He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. So as Christians, each and every one of us have this God-given, Bible-given mandate to make disciples. And I want to just bring some clarity this morning and say that a disciple is simply a real follower of Jesus. Some people believe that, that being a disciple is kind of like being a second-tier Christian. No, the, the, the word is synonymous with what it means to be a Christian. So if you are a true believer, you are a disciple. I'm going to take two weeks to kind of unpack this topic, this subject, because discipleship is at least a two-part process. And here's what I mean. Discipleship actually starts with believers reaching people who are far from God with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like if we don't do this, we can't possibly make disciples. We've got to reach them, and that is the first part of discipleship. The second part of discipleship, which I'll talk about in a couple weeks, is to teach those who then believe in Christ. We're not called just to make converts, but we're called to teach those who come to Christ, called to train them up in the Word of God. And so most of us understand this kind of mandate to make disciples, this call. But here's the reality. We're often incompetent in this area, aren't we? And I think we've really overcomplicated it. I love as I read through the, the book of Acts how just organically discipleship happens because they're talking about Jesus everywhere they go. And because the koinonia that exists, the fellowship that exists within the early church, people are just organically, again, being trained up in the Word of God. And so, so to, to illustrate to you, show you, to teach you how discipleship begins, I actually want to move from the book of Acts for a Sunday, and I want to go to Matthew chapter 5. Would you stand for the reading of the Word of God? Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, Jesus says to His disciples, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord, and you may be seated. Well, this 
part of uh, the text here in Matthew is, is a, a part of the larger Sermon on the Mount that most of us are familiar with. And within this magnificent message from Jesus, we see how we are supposed to be living as kingdom people. If you are in Christ, you are part of God's domain, His kingdom. And then the Beatitudes are listed in verses 2 through 12. These have to do with Christian character. And then in our text, Jesus moves on from character to conduct. And if you have Christian character, it will, in fact, produce the right kind of conduct. Amen? In, in this particular section, that is our focus today, describes the way in which we as believers, as kingdom people, are to influence the world. How many to know we are to be world influencers? We are to influence the people everywhere we go. Dr. Baderwolf years ago recorded a story from Greek mythology about a goddess who would always arrive unseen, but her presence was known by the blessings that she would leave behind. She would walk by a, a dead tree that had been burnt by a forest fire, and it would begin sprouting up new leaves. And she would walk by a hillside, and flowers, beautiful flowers, would begin to spring up. And then she would walk by stagnant water, and that pool would turn to fresh, useful water. In other words, she changed the atmosphere everywhere she went. She was a great influence everywhere she went. Had a great impact on the world. And I would suggest to you today that this is the kind of impact that we should be having spiritually on the world. And here's what I mean. We are called to influence the world for the glory of God by being what Jesus says in this text, by being salt and by being light. And this, I would suggest to you, is the first part of making disciples. If, in fact, we are salt and we are light, and I'm going to unpack that for you, but if we are those two things, we will reach people who are far from God. So number one, we make disciples by being salt to a decaying world. Salt, as we know, was a precious commodity in the ancient world. One Roman official was recorded as saying that there is nothing more useful than salt and sunshine. It was used as a fertilizer. It was used to add taste to food. But perhaps most importantly, in the early church in that first century, it was used as a preservative. Meat and fish would often be packed in good amounts of salt for preservation purposes, and this would obviously slow down decay. We all know that the world is experiencing great spiritual decay, amen? Because of sin, because of evil, because of darkness. And we as believers, as kingdom people, are supposed to be slowing down that decay by being the salt of the earth. So in verse 13, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste or lost its saltiness, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, God had already called Israel to be the salt of the earth. His chosen people were supposed to bear God's image to the surrounding communities. But there was an issue because instead of being different from their surrounding neighbors and pointing them to God, Israel often, as we know, assimilated and began living just like everybody else. They lost their distinctiveness. 
And here's what happens. Instead of, happened, instead of influencing the culture, they themselves were influenced by the culture. And ultimately, they had lost this saltiness. And consequently, they were of no benefit to the people around them, the secular world. Now, this passage can now be applied to all Christians as we are part of God's kingdom. We are called to slow down the decay in the world, which means we have to live and believe differently from the world. We have to remain salt. And salt is only useful in the preservation of meat if it remains different than the meat. It's got to remain chemically different. If at any moment it, it, it changes and it becomes like the meat, it is no longer used for useful for pre- preservation or anything else. Ross Dothat, who was an op-ed columnist in the New York Times, published an article sometime back about, it's, it was entitled, The uh, Terms of Our Surrender, and he's talking about Christians. And the point of the article was that given the legalization of same-sex marriage, that Christian organizations and businesses and churches who hold to traditional biblical values will eventually be given an ultimatum. And isn't this what we see happening right now? The idea is this, that we're coming to a place of great pressure. Either we give in and we change our views, or at least we keep our mouths shut, or we'll be labeled as bigots, and we have to deal with whatever consequences are laid out. That's where we're headed. It's already happening. And unfortunately, church, we see many who profess Christ, many churches, and I use that term very loosely, we see these people laying down biblical convictions and surrendering to the ways of the world. And those people, those churches, I want to argue today, they are no longer salt because they've lost their distinctiveness. So no matter the terms, people of God, no matter the terms, if we give in and change our convictions and we change our behaviors to be somewhat socially accepted, we will no longer be the salt of the earth. It just won't happen. And here's what's so interesting to me about this metaphor. Jesus warns uh, about salt losing its saltiness. But strictly speaking, salt cannot lose its saltiness because sodium chloride is a stable compound. And so here's what I believe Jesus means. True disciples, because under the new covenant they are changed persons, they cannot lose their saltiness. If they start living and believing like the world, it is a sign that they, in fact, are not real followers of Jesus. They're not true disciples. I know the world says they want us to be like them, but that is not what they need us to be. They are decaying, the people of the world, and they need some bold Christians full of the Holy Ghost to stand up and say, hey, you might want us to be like you, but we're going to walk in the ways of the Lord and teach you what you need to hear. You may not want to hear it, but it is what, in fact, you need to hear. It's pretty much what, remember the Peter and John in Acts chapter 4, they were threatened by the Sanhedrin. They said, hey, don't you speak or teach in the name of Jesus. And Peter and Don, John didn't say, well, all right, I guess. They said, hey, we can't help but to speak and teach what we know. In other words, you're not going to shut us up. Do what you will. Throw us in prison, we'll preach in prison. Stone us, we'll preach while you're stoning us. It doesn't matter, but we will not be silent. We're going to remain salt. Every broken, every hurting, every decaying community, 
Every neighborhood that we go into ought to be changed by our presence, by our character, by our values, by our godliness. When we live as the salt of the earth, here's what happens with our biblical convictions and distinctives. We will show the world a better way to be human, a better way to be human, and a way to worship the true and the living God. What we were made to do, that's what we show the world when we remain salt, and that's where discipleship starts. They need to see that we are different, but beyond that, we've got to make disciples by not just being salt to a decaying world, but by being light to a very dark world. Well, it's interesting when you think about the difference, subtle differences in, in this is, you know, the, these two metaphors kind of mean the same thing, but light takes it to a different degree. Salt is pretty subtle, right? I mean, often when it's mixed in with food, you can't see it or you can barely taste it depending on I don't know, some of you put a lot of salt on your food. I've eaten with you, but, uh, but, but sometimes it's more subtle, right? And, and what's interesting with salt is salt cannot stop decay ultimately. It can just slow down the process. But light, on the other hand, light can dispel darkness. One of my favorite things to do is to mess with my kids every morning when it's pitch black in the rooms and go on and say, hey, it's time to get up and turn on every light in the room and watch them kind of fumble around in pain, right? That's cruel, isn't it? And light immediately dispels the darkness. Verse 14, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. And how many know the world is full of darkness? Those of us who are part of God's kingdom, we are children of light. John in his gospel Chapter 1 and verse 6 says this, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This would be John the Baptist. And he came as a witness to bear witness about the light, Jesus, that all might believe through him. And it says he was not the light, but he came to bear witness to the light. So we see here, and then in verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming to the world. That's who Jesus is. He is the ultimate light. He's the ultimate source of light in the world. Amen? Then you have 1 John 1.5. This is the message we've heard from Him and proclaim to you that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from our sin. Friends, we Christians have been redeemed and we abide in Jesus Christ. Our lives, as the Bible talks about, are hidden with Him. And as believers, we are the light of the world, not because we're the ultimate source of that light, but we are the light of the world because we are reflecting the light of Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate source of that light. He is the manifestation of the light of God. And so this pushes us back to to think about Genesis when humankind was created in the image of God to display the, the glory like the heavens declare the glory of God. We are supposed to be displaying God's glory all over the earth. Well, that image that that we were called to bear was tainted by the fall and by sin. 
but through the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ, we are again, as we put on the righteousness of Christ, we are able again to bear His image. And that's what we're called to do as light. We're the light of the world, not because we ourselves in our flesh are light, but because we're reflecting, we're bearing God's image. We're reflecting that light. We're called to reflect the light of Jesus Christ. And Jesus mentions, interestingly, in the middle of this metaphor, that a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, cities were not normally in the ancient world built on hills. That'd be very expensive and very difficult. But a city that was built in such a way would at night illuminate many miles of the surrounding areas. Jerusalem was supposed to be that city on a hill. That would be a beacon of light, a beacon of hope to the surrounding communities. By the way in which they lived, the way they, in which they worshipped, they were supposed to show others by abiding by God's law. They were supposed to show others that the God of Israel was the one true God and that they too should worship Him. Another issue here is that the people who were supposed to be the light were not always shining so brightly. But Jesus Christ came. And he did what the other Israelites couldn't do. He completely and perfectly fulfilled the law of God and the prophets. He showed us what it is to truly walk in the light. And beyond that, Jesus was not just an example of it, but because of his death, because of his burial, because of his resurrection, and the new life we have in him, we actually don't just see Him as an example, but He's given us the power by the Holy Spirit to follow His example and actually now walk in the light. So He's not asking us to do something that we're not capable of doing. No, He's called us to walk in the light, to be the light, and He's empowered us to do so. Now, light in the Bible often represents hope and truth, joy. And this is what Jesus is. He is the hope that our broken world so desperately needs. Verse 15, he says, Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. The point is simple here, I think. We as believers are not to hide in some kind of Christian commune. Often we, we, we want to shelter ourselves from the world out there. But friends, we are called as believers. The reason we are still here is to go and to make disciples by being salt and light out there. The purpose of coming together today is to worship God together, to be encouraged, and to be equipped for the work of the ministry, which starts immediately when you walk out these doors. There are thousands of people in Richmond who are broken and in darkness and in decay, and they desperately need somebody to be salt and to be light. Students, those of you who are in public schools, man, I pray every day when I, I don't, actually my son drives now, that's so weird. He drives to school, but just months ago I was still dropping him off as he would go into Central High School. And I've been in there, and it's a, he tells me stories, I mean, it's a dark place, but I'm glad he's there because I want him to be a light to a people who desperately need it. We have an EKU, our university, a stone throw from our church full of thousands of students, 16,000 students strong at least, many, most of who are broken and who are decaying and who are walking in darkness, and they need our students of Chi Alpha 
and of crew and of the Baptist Student Union and so on and so forth to be a light and to be salt to broken people at the supermarket, at our jobs, everywhere we go, we need to be salt and light. Well, how is it that we can be light? Jesus tells us in verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. There's two ways I see here that we can be light as the people of God. Number one, we shine Christ's light by our good works. We shine Christ's light when we demonstrate compassion on those who need it, when we love our neighbor, when we display the fruit of the Spirit, when we stand up for issues of social justice. We shine Christ's light when we take care of the poor and the marginalized, the orphan, the widow, so on and so forth. When we worship God, we're shining Christ's light. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. And those good works aren't all spiritual. God has called us to take care of the physical and spiritual needs of people, to feed the hungry, to take care of the poor, and beyond that, to take care of their spiritual needs as well. So we shine Christ's light by good works. Number two is we shine Christ's light by our proclamation of the gospel. And we, so we can't stop with good works. And this bothers me when, when Christians just do good deeds, but don't go a step further and proclaim the gospel. Verse 16 says this, that we are to let our light shine so that people see our good works. And watch this, and give glory to our God who is in heaven, which begs the question, how are people going to know to give glory to God because of our good works? I think the implication and the logical answer, the only logical answer is this, that we have to proclaim to them the reason for our good works. I like to say it like this. We, we need to point people beyond us unto the glory of God. When we look at the beauty of God's creation, we look up and we see the stars and, 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 and we, we just consider the beauty of so much of His creation on earth. We're supposed to enjoy that, but we're not supposed, Romans 1 talks about, we're not supposed to worship the creation. That's not what it's for. It's supposed to be a giant finger pointing us on beyond itself to the glory of an almighty God. You know, people ask the question all the time, if we're the only inhabited planet, why in the world did God make so much? And I love what John Piper said. He said, he, he said it's, it's to declare His glory, and it's a vast understatement. Let that just marinate for a moment. That's the way that we're supposed to live our life. So when we serve the community, when we feed the hungry, when we take care of the ill, when we clothe the naked, we're not supposed to say, oh, look at me. Look how great I am. No, we're supposed to be like that giant finger pointing people beyond us saying, oh, don't praise me. Thank the Lord. It is by Him and through Him that I'm able to bless you. And so here's the beauty. Here's what this has to do with discipleship. When we serve others and when we take it a step further, we proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Here's what will happen. Some will respond in faith. 
They will respond in faith. This is what we see, Acts 6 again. And the Word of God continued to increase. They kept preaching and preaching and serving and serving. And here's what happens. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And then as we read on, it went from there to Judea, to Samaria, and to the Roman world. That's the impact this kind of living has. So church, I just want to suggest to you today, we don't need these marketing plans to grow our church. I don't think that's what God wants us to do. We we don't have to conjure up some big business scheme to to grow the church. How are we going to grow the church? Let me tell you, we're going to be salt and we're going to be light. We're going to go out. We're going to be distinctive. We're going to stand by our values. We're going to have distinctions from this world. We're not going to be like them. We're going to remain different. We're going to remain salt, and they will be blessed because of it. Some will hate us because of it. That's all right. Sometimes putting salt on a wound burns. And then we're going to be light. We're going to serve our communities. And beyond that, we are going to proclaim the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, both the Jew and the Gentile. And when we do that, it's like flipping on the light in the midst of darkness. Darkness will be dispelled because here's what I believe. The Bible says none can come to the Father unless He draws them. God right now is cultivating hearts all around Richmond. And those hearts are just waiting on some faithful brother or sister in Christ to go and love them enough to tell them the truth in love. We need to be salt and light. A little over a year ago, Amber Geiger, an off-duty police officer in Dallas, entered the apartment of 26-year-old Botham Jean. And she later said that she thought she was entering her own apartment and she mistook Botham for a burglar and consequently shot and killed him. At the beginning of this month, she was found guilty of murder and sentenced to 10 years in prison. Botham's brother, Brant, was offered the opportunity to give a victim impact statement, and he proceeded to address his brother's killer directly in a Christ-honoring way. Here are his words just to remind you. He said this, if you are truly sorry, I can speak for myself and I forgive, and I know if you go to God and ask Him, He will forgive you. And I don't know, I don't think anyone can say, again, I'm speaking for myself, but I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die just like my brother, but I presently want the best for you. And I wasn't going to ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you because I know that's exactly what both of them would have wanted for you. And the best would be to give your life to Christ. So he's moving from salt, forgiveness, it's a value, to light as he's proclaiming the gospel. And he says, I'm not going to say anything else, but I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. I don't wish anything bad upon you. His brother's killer. Again, I love you as a person. I don't want anything bad to come upon you. That's grace. I don't know if this is possible. As he turns to the judge, he says, but can I give her a hug? Please, please. And Brent Jean proceeds to embrace his brother's killer 
and it impacted the world and the media in such a God-glorifying way. And my friends, that is how we are salt and light in the earth. That's it. And oh, how we need more saints to be like that.